UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips and I have with me Jack. Hello, Jack. Hi, how's it going? Pretty good. You? How you doing? Yeah, I'm great, thank you. Yeah, I'm just so good that the weather is finally uh, sunny again. Oh yeah, it's finally spring today, isn't it? We're recording on the 27th of May, if, if people are wondering. <laughs> it just got sunny in England. So, Jack, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Well, my name's Jack Greenhouge and I'm a PhD student at the University of Bristol. And I'm really interested in the bizarre underwater acoustic world of ponds and rivers. And in particular, the research for my PhD is focused on describing the individual species sounds that you can find in in a pond, and also describing how the soundscape or the entire acoustic environment changes throughout the period of 24 hours from the baking heat of, of the midday through to the cool evening, and then also how that soundscape changes throughout the course of a year. Oh, excellent. Well, that's a very uh, <laughs> comprehensive and spot-on description. Right, so we always start the uh, episode with our latest sightings and as the guest jack you get to go first so have you had any interesting wildlife sightings well unfortunately i haven't been out too much because of the weather but um i have been walking around and um, recording some things um and i've seen well while i was walking through a field actually a farmer's field i looked in the uh, the water trough for the cows and i saw some newts in there i saw two newts swimming around in that in there and um i've no idea what species they are presumably smooth newts do you think or uh, possibly, because you're down in the, towards the southwest, the palmates start getting a bit more uh, common. They, was it, have you got hard water where you are, sort of more acidic water? Um, I'm not too sure, to be honest. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, so it could be it could be either, really. But um, yeah. Yeah, well, that's what I thought, yeah. But it was cool to see them there, though. I mean, it, it just shows that they'll, be, they'll get absolutely anywhere. Anywhere there's water, yeah. they'll go. Well, so I'm sure you know there's uh, one of the great water boatmen, um, if you look in the books, it's because it likes sort of more solid and no plants, uh, plain, I suppose, what's the word I'm looking for, you know, devoid of vegetation ponds. Mm-hmm. You quite often find it in water butts along with a few other water beetles. But yes, yeah, so newts, newts will get into anywhere. They can climb up vertical surfaces if it's wet. Really? It's, yeah. Certainly, you know, like a metal trough or a, a wall sometimes. If there's enough water tension, they can use that to climb up. Certainly the small ones can anyway. Um, that's why newt fences have a curved over bit at the top to stop them getting out. Right, yeah. Yeah. Oh, amazing. I'm sure pretty, what... pretty incredible little creatures, really. Yeah, they really are. I'm trying to think what I was going to say now for my sightings. Oh, because I've been at work this week um, and I work in a nature reserve. Obviously, it was miserable weather for the first two days, but today's been lovely. I've had a few lizards, which is quite nice. And I'm trying to think since the last episode, I think we had the cuckoo and sparrowhawk encounter, which is lovely. Oh, that's incredible. That That's always good when you get those. And in the river I was in today, we were doing some sample, kick sampling. We had uh, minnows with full breeding coloration, bright red with the white spots, uh, swimming around. And one of their groups caught a uh, load of baby bullheads, which is oh, lovely. Right, yeah. so, one of them was Miller's Fums and stuff like that. Uh, they look, for those that don't know, they look like gobies you find on the beach, but a bit browner and live in fresh water. Yeah, I yeah. used to remember um, as a kid going through the rivers and turning over stones. Always finding yeah. those. And... Yeah, classic. I mean, I never felt, because uh, where I live in Essex is just rubbish pollution-wise, I never saw them until I was an adult and did some surveying in Suffolk. But yeah, brilliant fish. They're still quite uh, special to me. And I'm trying to think if I mentioned the, I think I mentioned the lamprey in the last episode. So that was really cool. But today it was just cardinal beetles, scorpion flies, uh, damselflies. I got my first azure damselfly today because the sun came out and everything yeah. came out. But 
I think the highlight of today, other than the minnows maybe, was I opened up the moth trap, which was running last night. And if there was 50 cockchafer beetles in there, I'd 50? say that was un- 50, I'd say there was <laughs> at least. That is amazing. Oh, um, I'm going to put a video on, on if, if you go on my social media, you'll probably find it. That's a UK wildlife one. I'm going to put it on there after we finish recording this. But that's, yeah, <laughs> there was only about 10 moths. <laughs> but uh, I've some nice popular moths, which are lovely. But yeah. Well, it sounds like uh, it sounds like you've had quite an incredible day for wildlife yeah. sightings. Yeah, and, and best of all, a lot of that was with a group of seventeen-year-olds that were doing yeah, their first yeah. sort of field work. So they got a, I think they quite enjoyed it. They, they absolutely love going to the river. I never had a group that doesn't enjoy, you know, splashing around in a stream or river. Um, I remember. Um, I remember when I was um, at primary school, um, someone from the environment agency, I think, came. And they had a big sweep net and they, they came to this kind of like margin full of long grasses and things that we had in our next to our school field. And he thrashed around with this net in, in the long grass and what the hell is he doing? And tipped the net down towards us and we peered our heads over it. And it was just hopping with all kinds of different insects. Yeah. Oh my God. I had no idea that there was so much life in something that just looks inanimate. Yeah. And the same can be said for ponds and pond dipping. Um, uh, well, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is a brilliant segue. It's almost as we planned that, <laughs> which we didn't actually for once. Um, but, uh, into uh, the topic we're covering today, which is, I suppose, bioacoustics would be a good way of summing it up, wouldn't it? Or ecoacoustics. Could you kind of explain what bioacoustics are generally, first of all, before we get into exactly the, your section of it, I suppose? Sure. So, well, the, there's two main fields, really. Um, the first is like you say, bioacoustics. And that's really the study of species producing sound and then using that sound either to communicate or you know, to survive and, and, and pass on their genes. Uh, is, is, that's the, uh, the main focus of bioacoustics, really individual species sounds. Whereas a new field that's recently developed called ecoacoustics is more focused on um, using audio recordings in order to describe ecological patterns or diversity. So it's a marriage between audio and ecology and it's ecoacoustics that i'm particularly interested in yeah so i think if some people might be aware of uh, like a bat surveys and they leave a recorder going and they can find out how many bats are in a, and what species they are in a in a roost which is sort of standard procedure almost now but you're doing it in a habitat that has anybody done it before, really? Um, you're certainly pioneering into there, aren't you? I mean, we know a lot about terrestrial soundscapes, rainforests, and, and like you say, um, with bats. And the field has developed so much with bats now that um, we, can, we can automatically detect the sounds produced by bats so that we can identify the different species that are producing these different sounds. And also with in the marine environment, we know a lot about the sounds of coral reefs and we know a lot about, um, in particular, the sounds of whales. And it was in the 1970s um, where we first started to record whale song. And recording whale song did fantastic things for whale conservation. And everybody immediately knew about whales and, you know, could, could relate to them in a way that they couldn't before. But we know so little about the freshwater soundscape. And just imagine the potential for freshwater conservation if we could somehow you know, mirror um, the effects of bioacoustics and ecoacoustics um, had on whale conservation for freshwater conservation. Yeah, that'd be brilliant if we could. Because <laughs> it's like Les was saying, it's just so underappreciated. And obviously with, a, with someone that's been nicknamed Pond Man, I'm obviously going to say that anyway, but such an amazing world down there and i have to admit the acoustic side of things is something i'm not 
overly familiar with you know I've, I've had the there's a few classic species in there. there's a beetle called the screech beetle or a squeak beetle i know it growing up yeah they're uh, really cool those i mean what you can pick those up and <laughs> and if you gently press on the side of them you can you can actually audibly hear the the screech that they make yeah but there's there's a whole load of species that make noises isn't there in in the underwater world Oh, it's incredible. I mean, I was totally blown away when I recorded for the first time uh, the underwater sounds in a pond. Um, I was a sceptic to begin with, to be honest with you. I didn't really think that um, anything was going to come of it. You walk up to a pond and you just see the flat mirror surface of the water. Um, You know, maybe it's got some plants in there and you might think, okay, there could be some diversity in there. But I mean, there doesn't look like there's a lot in there just from standing next to it and looking over. And you put the hydrophone in and you put the headphones on for the first time. And wow, you know, all of a sudden you hear this amazing soundscape. It's like a jungle under there. And it, well, it is a jungle. It's an underwater jungle with this um, 3D structure of aquatic plants and um, diving beetles and water boatmen all darting in and out of the plants. And, you know, they all produce sound under there. And it's, it is exactly like, you know, walking around in a jungle and, and hearing all those species communicating. It's amazing. So, so you're recording this stuff. You've got a uh, an underwater microphone, which is a hydrophone, isn't it? And you you just plug this into a like a normal sound recorder, is it? It's nothing particularly special, is it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like you say, a, um, a hydrophone, just an underwater microphone, and then you can plug that into any recorder, really. Um, quite a lot of the hydrophones come with a three point five millimeter audio jack, which is the same that any kind of uh, head, normal headphones has got a three point five millimeter audio jack on the end. Um, so you can plug that into it pretty much any recorder and yeah off you go i mean that is is quite simple really you don't need a lot of equipment and um you can get recording oh fantastic now you've got some sounds for us to listen to today haven't you so should we have a listen to some of those creatures and i think some people are going to be surprised about how noisy some of these creatures are okay so um, well, for my master's project, we noticed that it was actually the water beetles that were producing quite a lot of sound. So as part of my project, I isolated some of these water beetles in a special field tank to record the sounds that they make. And I've got some recordings here. This one is of the lesser diving beetle, Acillus sulcatus. odd sound isn't it that one yeah it's really weird and they make well we noticed they make um some low frequency kind of humming sounds and then some higher frequency clicks and well this is kind of uh similar to well, strangely similar to elephants um <laughs> elephants make a mixture of low frequency sounds these rumbling sounds that can travel vast distances across the landscape and they use that to communicate with uh with other elephants um the long distances away and then as, as their friends come closer and as they're alerted to their location, they start using the higher frequency sounds in order to provide a more accurate position. So the trumpeting and, and all the other sounds that you associate with elephants. So well, we suggested that a similar thing might be going on with these diving beetles is they're producing low frequency sounds that travel throughout the pond, perhaps um, to say, hey, come over here and you know have some fun with me. And then these high frequency clicks to actually say specifically where they are. 
Um, so I think it's amazing to think that there are similarities between um, a diving beetle in a, in a pond and, and elephants in the, in the savannah. Can you hear these sounds with the human ear? Well, they're with yeah, they're they're within the audible frequency range. So, um, with a human ear, we can hear between well about um, zero kilohertz up to about twenty um, kilohertz is uh, is our audible range. And the sounds of the water beetles are made around about five kilohertz up to about twelve kilohertz. So they're within our audible range, but some of them aren't that loud. So you'd have to have very very good hearing uh, in order to pick them up, but it's conceivable that you could. Yeah, in fact, right. um, the the loudest animal in a pond is is the water boatman, and as a species of water boatman, um, it was shown that is capable of producing such a loud sound that when scaled to body length, it made a sound with a sound pressure level, basically the volume, um, louder than two hundred and twenty seven mammal um, vocalizations. So incredibly loud. And people have said that when you're walking next to the pond, you can hear this sound um, from the surface. Uh, this, this this was fact was inevitable. It was going to come up because it's a, the famous fact, isn't it? It's uh, louder than a blue whale when you scout it up, like you said, uh, which mm-hmm. makes it the loudest animal for its body size. And inevitably, we have to talk about how it does it. How what, it's what made, body of course. Should, yeah. Yes. Well, um, so aquatic insects, they, they produce sound um, by this process called, called stridulation, which is uh, the rubbing together of two hard body parts, uh, which I think is a great word. But the, <laughs> this particular species of water boatman produces that sound by rubbing, well, it's um, penis, basically, up against its leg. Um, yep. So um, yeah. <laughs> It's a neat trick. Uh, we had to say it at some point. Yeah, yeah, it was going to come up at some point, so we've got it out of the way now. <laughs> but yes, it's a favourite fact of uh, if I have to do a pond talk and it's a mainly adult audience, it, it kind of has to come up somehow. Um, yeah, is it, uh, what's it, Carixa pansyri, isn't it? It hasn't got a common name yet. You've, uh, I can think of a few. <laughs> I don't think any of them are suitable for a family audience. Um, yeah. Oh, dear. Brilliant things. So we've got some more to listen to as well, haven't we? We sure do, yeah. So I'm just thinking now I could play you the sound of a water boatman. Ooh, another interesting sound that one, isn't it? Yeah, they're really weird. They're quite quite eerie. Those sounds actually, kind of that gently in the background, and they're always there. Um, yeah. They seem to be the most common sound that, that you hear in a pond. And there, there's similarities actually between terrestrial marine and, and now freshwater soundscapes. That um, it's always the insects that seem to be laying down the kind of the baseline, as it were, of the soundscape. Mm. So in the rainforest, you have the cicadas that are constantly going away in the background. And on coral reefs, we now know that it's snapping shrimps. They're making these popping, snapping sounds that we can hear almost omnipresent on the reef. And in fresh waters now, we're discovering that it's the water boatman with that eerie rattling sound that's constantly in the background. That's pretty cool. I do like a water boatman. Yeah, they're there good. They're nice things. So d- does the great, because that's the less water boatman we're talking about here, isn't it? The uh, Carixidae. Mm-hmm. Is it, yeah. So do, do the um, great water boatmen, the back swimmers on Nota Next Today make sounds as well? Yeah, they do. Yeah. So I, I think there are around 18 different species of sound producing or sniferous um, species of water boatmen 
in the UK, um, something like 18. And also, yes, as you say, back swimmers produce sound. You know, there's so little research that's been done in this field that we don't actually know um, which species is responsible for producing which sound. We don't have a reference library of sounds that we can use in order to identify and to pick out these sounds from the soundscape. So that's really the next big challenge um, in this field, is to work out work out all the band members, basically. I can I can see the future now. So we get these um, whale song CDs or these identified birds from calls. We're going to have a CD of pond creatures in the future that, produced by you. Wow. That's, what, that's what I'm expecting. <laughs> It'll be a bestseller, I'm sure. <laughs> in the a best, niche market, a bestseller in some very very small circles. <laughs> yeah. Oh right, and I think we've got another sound, haven't we? Now I'll do some aquatic plant sounds now. Ooh. Um, so it's not just insects that make sound uh, in a pond actually plants produce sound and they make these really weird whining sounds as they're photosynthesizing and it's the small little trail of, of um, oxygen bubbles streaming out um, underwater that's producing this, this strange sound so I'll, I'll play some for you here now I'll tell you what, if um, someone in Hollywood is trying to find some sound effects for a sci-fi movie, yeah. I think I know where they should look. Yeah, well, a pond is a great place to look for uh, sci-fi sound effects, that's for sure, yeah. I mean, well, it almost sounds like there's something wrong with your recorder or your phone or something. It's like static or, yeah, really bizarre, really bizarre. I remember, I remember playing with my waterproof compact and mm-hmm. every time I recorded, I could hear a constant click. And I always assumed it was something to do with the microphone or bubbles or something getting caught in it. But I do wonder now if it was something in the background making that. Cause it, was, it was very rhythmic. It's like a yeah, clockwork yeah. almost. And some of the animals do do that, don't they? It could have been plants photosynthesizing, like you're saying. So. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah. So we've got the we've got the aquatic insects. They're the the kind of the main components of the soundscape. And then the aquatic plants are in the background. Um, in particular in the in the midday sun. But then there's also fish, and the fish produce sound, like much like they do in, uh, in the marine environment, they also do in the, in the freshwater. And they produce sound by contracting a muscle that's uh, next to their swim bladder. It's, oh. called a, it's called a drumming muscle. And that muscle pulsates and it sends vibrations through the air in the swim bladder that then permeate through the water. And that results in a really kind of low frequency boom, 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 boom sound. Yeah. So they're, they're like the kick drum in this band. And they can also stridulate as well. They they can make sound by rubbing. Um, if they've got spines, they can rub their spines oh, um, right. by, so by stridulating. What, what sort of species are doing this? Um, well, you know what? <laughs> I'm not so sure in particular. Yeah. Um, I think um, I've certainly recorded in ponds that have rud All right. and um, carp, I think, uh, oh, right. and possibly um, perch as well. But, you know, I've never, I haven't quite got round to uh, to putting fish into tanks yet. And recording oh, them, but we do ah. know it is known um, mm. that, that species of fish do produce sound. And there's a guy um, called Rodney Roundtree in uh, in America who uh, has been recording the sounds of piranha oh. in the Amazon, and that's that's really cool stuff. And wow. he's working on a he's working on a method at the moment to detect these different species of piranha from soundscapes in the Amazon by describing the, the, the calls they make. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think that's really amazing. So that, that is. we know fish produce uh, sound, but um, we haven't quite yet figured out who's, who's doing what. 
Oh well, uh, the famous example is herring, isn't it? Mm. Who uh, who communicate by um, blowing bubbles, but not out the f- not out the front end. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I bet there's going to be so many um, bizarre oh. things like that. So many little mysteries left to discover in in, uh, in this field of freshwater ecoacoustics. That um, just because we know almost nothing, really. Mm. Um, the first study investigating the soundscapes of temperate ponds was conducted as recently as 2015 2015 <laughs> wow uh, so it really is a new field it's literally well groundbreaking water breaking i don't know <laughs> yeah one amazing of those stuff. one of those yeah so you've also got some soundscapes which is the, the complete sound that actually recorded in the ponds haven't you so should we should we have a listen to a couple of those i think just so people can uh, have a listen to so what we're all missing by sitting above the surface all the time yeah sure so um well this is a recording that i made um uh, in Chew magna reservoir which is just outside of bristol and this reservoir is full of signal crayfish and it's also got some trout in there and lots of um, aquatic plants around the margin and then some smaller aquatic insects like the water boatman and the diving beetles that we've talked about. So this is a recording of, of all of those things happening. But actually, this is at three in the morning. This is a dead of night. Um, so there's not much plant activity, but um, as you'll tell, there's, uh, there is certainly a lot going on. So it sounds like um, a grasshopper with some maracas. Yeah, absolutely. It? <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like you're walking through a field in the evening and you can hear all the grasshoppers yeah. out. Yeah, but I guess it's because they're producing sound in a very similar way yeah. um, that it resembles that. So we could hear the the water boatman, the rat, 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 rat sounds. Yeah. And then I in the background, that... there's the high frequency sound, which I suspect is made by signal crayfish. Do you ever hear them sort of snapping their claws or anything? The crayfish. Well. Uh, it's funny you should ask because tomorrow morning I'm going um, back to Chew Magna Reservoir to collect some signal crayfish. And, and I've just had some licenses approved by Natural England and Ethics from the University of Bristol to record them to record them in my bathtub, basically. Um, <laughs> Science! Yeah. Uh, well, I say in my bathtub, I mean in a box that's in my yeah. bathtub just in yeah. case it leaks and water goes everywhere. But it's fun to say. Um, so I'm going to um, really drill deep into the sounds that they're making because I think, um, you know, I think they're making sounds there. So if we could tell, I mean, that would be fantastic if we could tell the difference, for example, between the highly invasive signal crayfish, which we've had um, from America since uh, since the mid 70s. If we could tell the difference between that species and our native white clawed crayfish, which has population decreased by about 90 percent. If we could tell the difference between those two species simply by listening, then we might be able to work out where the populations are moving, where they're spreading, and then try and put in place measures to mitigate that. That'd be brilliant, yeah. Now, there's there's some patches along the River Stour and Essex that are teeming with signal crayfish, but not, oh. not, not the bits I was in today. That's, bizarrely, there's no crayfish there. There's loads upstream and loads downstream, but not there. Which no, really, that's interesting, yeah. It's well, really weird. Uh, and, you know, for now. I think for now. Well, they, they've been at both the others for you know a decade oh, really? or two, oh, and for some reason we think it's because there's lots of chub. Right, right. And chub like to eat them, don't they? So yeah, um, oh, good on them. Yeah, good there's a few them. burrows around, but no one's ever caught a crayfish there. And we did intensively trap there for mm-hmm. 
like last winter for two weeks and didn't catch a single crayfish. Right, really? Caught two yeah. fish in the fish-proof tra- traps, including in their... Um, in a rough, bizarrely, but, uh, which is the first one ever caught on the site, which is oh, it's a funny old, funny old thing, isn't it? How it all works out these things, but um, yeah, no, because you of course, of course, the the long game I imagine is uh, telling uh, going back to the crayfish, white clawed from um, all the others because you've got the red swamp and the narrow clawed or Turkish if you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, well, there's a whole load of different crayfish, isn't there? I think there's maybe seven or eight or something like that. I mean, there's so many, it's hard to keep track of. Oh, it's up to that now, is it? And you've got the mitten crabs. Because uh, I remember Jack Perks was talking about, I think it's Regent's Canal, you've got mitten crabs fighting with red swamp crayfish, Turkish mm-hmm. or narrow clawed yeah. now crayfish, and now the signals are moving in to try and bully them all out of the way. <laughs> so, right, yeah. Well, this is the thing is that they're so aggressive. So, you know, one of, one of the interesting things I learned about um, signal crayfish at the beginning of my PhD is, uh, do you know what the main predator of signal crayfish is? Um, is, is it other crayfish? Yeah, yeah. yeah, other crayfish, yeah. It's only because I went to a talk on them. <laughs> yeah. Is that, well, I mean, I knew they were cannibalistic, but that's yeah. that's incredible, isn't it? Because it, it um, you might have been there as well. The London Freshwater Group, there was a brilliant talk by somebody where they drained a stream in Yorkshire and the entire ecosystem was algae fed on by mm-hmm. tiny crayfish, which are then eaten by bigger ones, eaten by bigger ones, eaten by bigger ones, and so on. Yeah, yeah. I think as um, Dan Chadwick and Larry Pritchard and all yes. the team at, at University College London were doing that. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, that was amazing because when they, when they drained all the water away and they were turning over stones yeah. to to count the um try, they were trying to get a true estimate basically yeah. of, of the crayfish density there and i can't remember the figure exactly but it was it was absolutely eye-watering i think it's something yeah. close to almost 100 individuals per meter squared in this tiny little upland stream and i think most of the crayfish they found they're not these big adults that's actually um, a Amazing. small percentage of the entire population most of them are tiny little ones and um, probably like some little fingernail size wasn't well, that's the same study where they they did some crayfish trapping didn't they? they did intense crayfish trapping which a lot of people were saying oh let's get everyone to eat them that'll control them um and mm. after they did the crayfish trapping wasn't it like 96 percent of them were still in there <laughs> or something ridiculous yeah. wasn't it um and yeah and of course the problem is if, as soon as you build up a trade for something like product demand you create a reason for them to be there yeah, yeah and um the reason for someone less scrupulous to move them to their local canal or river because course, they want yeah. want to harvest them there but um well it's the it's the reason they're here in the first place yeah, right exactly and and also um from what i hear some crazy carp fishermen putting in their lake thinking it's make the carp go bigger <laughs> along with bullfrogs and marsh frogs and what was the other one someone told me they put in there some of what it was but i'm not this is i don't want to demonize all carp fishermen this is just some lunatics among the carp fishermen doing this um yeah oh it's just because <laughs> like, oh. the last i think the last river in essex that didn't have signal crayfish they escaped from a carp fishery right, whether yeah. or not it, that was put in there by on purpose i don't know because obviously they can sneaking and crawling quite easily can't they from other places so yeah yeah that yeah they, no they'll go over land and up the stream down the stream oh dear yeah but what weirdly that they, they they seem to sometimes colonize some places and just sort of okay, that they might knock out the native crayfish but not do too much damage. And then you get other places, like what Stream we're talking about, where they decimate everything. It's um, Yeah. But th- this, is, yes, yeah. this is all part of this uh, broken ecosystem and invasive species idea, isn't it? That mm-hmm. The reason mm-hmm. we have so many invasive species is because we've already messed everything up and made a niche for them, isn't it, really? it's um, If we had a fully healthy ecosystem, they might not 
uh, will certainly not do as well and do as much damage. So um, some of my uh, other research that I do for my PhD is involved with using environmental DNA, which is a method whereby you can take a water sample and contained within that water sample are cells that are released from any kind of animal that's living in there. Much like a person at a crime scene is, is constantly shedding skin cells or hair cells, mm. fish and crayfish, whatever it is you're interested in, are shedding cells into the water. And you can sample that water and extract the DNA sequences from those cells mm. and then use that like a, like a barcode to identify any species that you're interested in. Yeah, it's, it's been quite um, widely used for Great Crested Newts, isn't it? Yeah, there's a, there's been a big um, citizen science mm. project, I think. Um, yeah, I've done a bit of that for them, so... Uh... Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Yes. Yeah, so, so you've been using that with crayfish. Yeah. So we've been working um, in West Yorkshire in a in a village called Addingham, um, which is located just off the River Wharf. Okay. And um, well, signal crayfish were stocked into a trout farm actually um, in Kilsney in, in the mid eighties, and they subsequently escaped into the River Wharf, where they've been advancing downstream and, and a bit upstream. And Addingham is about forty kilometres um, downstream of this trout farm. And the signal crayfish are moving down the river wharf, but also into the tributaries and into the small streams or becks, as they call them, in West Yorkshire. And we did a survey of these becks in, in and around the village of Addingham to work out how far these signal crayfish have advanced up the becks from the river wharf and to detect the invasion front, as it were the extent of their range up the backs and um well one of the main findings from the study actually is that they've um they've advanced up as far as the sailor pub mm-hmm. in town so that so they've stopped at the pub which yeah, uh, yeah smart move but you know this is um particularly useful information because now we know where it might be more effective to put in methods in order to stop the spread further upstream or to deploy um methods like catching or to try to try and eradicate them and I think if you can catch them, I mean, if you've got an established crayfish population, then I think probably forget it. Yeah. Um, but if you catch them moving upstream and just in the act of colonising a new place, yeah, then I think perhaps you've got, um, certainly you've got a better chance. Yeah, because it'd probably be the larger individuals moving upstream, would it? Absolutely. Yeah, because yeah, they're more powerful and able to go against mm-hmm. the current. I suppose a sport little one isn't going to do very well, is it? Oh, amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I can see that it works. Yeah, because of course... Um, the beauty of a river is that it goes downstream; it doesn't go flow upstream. So you know where where the DNA stops is the is where exactly the, yes. Yeah. So oh. all the DNA is flowing with the water yeah. downstream. So you know, yeah, like you say, if you take a sample at um, the Sailor Pub, for example, you know that if you get DNA there, then they must be further upstream of that place. Yeah. Oh, t- talking of eDNA, someone posted something very depressing on social media last a week. We we, we quite often cover. Um, pollution in rivers on on this podcast it comes up a lot um and you know Fergal Sharky and the others raising a lot of awareness mm. of it um someone put something up that they did an eDNA survey in a load of rivers and do you know what species 97% of it was oh the dogs or something. no human because there's so much sewage going into the river that it was flooding everything else I would imagine as well there's probably a lot of cow poo in there isn't there oh probably yeah but I'd say yeah. when it's flooded 97% of yeah so everything living in actually living in the river is is yeah. oh it's horrible yeah yeah oh, but on a slightly more on a slightly more positive note near the area where um we did that crayfish study mm. Ilkley 
um, has just received, I think, the first freshwater, clean water bathing status in the UK. Oh, lovely! Um, which is which is great news, but also shocking that you know, that's that's the first one. It's yeah. the only one that we have. I mean, we're I'm aware of um, a couple of beaches that have got these like blue flag yeah. boards and whatever, but only one freshwater that's that's so clean. Yeah, it's shocking. A, uh, I've I've been uh, following. It's a river trust were involved in that, weren't they? They've they've mentioned mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. Well, well, I was going to try and bring up crayfish and eDNA, but it's come out quite naturally, so that's rather excellent. But I think a good place, I mean, I could talk to you all day about all this stuff, um, and I probably will talk to you about once we finish recording for quite a while as well. But um, I, I think a good place to end would be your project with Tom Fisher. Would you like to explain what that's all about? And it's quite an interesting concept, really. Sure. So Tom Fisher is a musician and a sound artist. He also goes by the name of Action Pyramid. And um, we're working together to create um, an album, basically, a, um, an album that's going to tell the day in the life of a pond acoustically. And um, it starts off with a dawn chorus, actually, um, a familiar soundscape, and then slowly transitions into this underwater world. And it starts with the, the midday. And you can hear all the plants going and they're, they're photosynthesizing, respiring in the sun. And then the sun sets and all that busy activity goes down and then you get a bit of a lull and then as the the moon comes up and the temperature drops all these strange um, aquatic invertebrate stridulation sounds start appearing and it builds into this crescendo of aquatic insect stridulation at night time and the idea is like i say to tell that story of the the daily cycle in acoustic activity we're going to divide it up into four parts dawn midday dusk and midnight and Tom is producing a, a particular synth sound that's going to be representative of each of those four periods. And that sound is going to be informed by, by the biology that's happening in those times. Oh, wow. Well, what a cool concept. You know, we, we've gone from not knowing anything and now we're making albums on it. It's a... <laughs> right. Yeah, if, if someone had said to me at the beginning of my PhD, you'd yeah. be making an album. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be surprised. <laughs> oh, amazing. Do you know what? I think I think I'll ask you one more question before you go. Um if somebody wants to you know, you could you could catch a a pot a, a water boatman um and hopefully it'll make a call in, in the tank or the tray you've got it in, but uh if somebody wanted to go and listen to this themselves, have, have you got any sort of tips on what sort of any sort of affordable equipment and stuff they could use and uh, what sort of time of day Mm. and stuff is best absolutely yeah so um well there's a a guy called jez riley french who makes great hydrophones they're about 60 pounds yes i've I've got one of those which i've they're good aren't they yeah yeah, i've I've only used it a couple of times (laughs) i need to just pull my finger out and go and use it yeah get out there get out there we go together i'm gonna now and um, and then all you need, all you need is, uh, in addition to that, is a recorder. And so you could buy either a Zoom recorder or a Tascam recorder. Um, they normally cost around about eighty, ninety pounds. And then obviously batteries and a sound card to to get the data, and a pair of headphones. Oh. But um, you don't need much, and you can get out there, and um, and get recording, get listening. On the twenty first of June, we're having a, a bit of an event. We're having a pond acoustic sampling day where. Well, recently, some um, some research I've been involved in was developing a, a protocol for surveying ponds acoustically. And what you do is you turn up at a pond and you record for 10 minutes in 10 different spots around the pond. And the idea is to get a representative 
picture of all the different microhabitats they're called, all the all the different subhabitats within the within the place. So, in a pond that might be a stand of reeds, and then it, one other one might be a patch of open water, deep and shallow, and you get these contrasting microhabitats to reflect the the whole pond. So you recall for ten minutes, one minute at each of these microhabitats, and then we have um, a particular place where you can upload this uh, this data and um, contribute to a, a much-needed growing library of, of freshwater soundscapes. Oh, wow. So all of this information uh, for how to get involved with this Pond Acoustic Sampling Day on the 21st of June, you can find um, on my Twitter, which is at uh, Wild Audio Jack. Brilliant. There you go. Well, that, that's, that's, uh, that, that was the next question I was going to ask you. But uh, what, one, one more last question. Is there a best time of day or is it any time, really? Yeah, so well, the best time of day I think is is um, midday generally, or whenever it's sunny and hot. All right. I think the the aquatic insects really like it when it's hot, mm. and uh, their activity always seems to go up then. And obviously the plants as well; they're they're more active when it's sunny. So I think that's that's generally speaking, that's the best time. Oh, fantastic! But as, uh, from what you're saying, it's worth trying other times as well because you get different sounds and. Well, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So some of the things I've been finding is that different ponds have different day-night acoustic cycles. So one pond might be quite quiet in the evening, but another one might be full of life and, and busy and, and, and loud in the evening and at night. So it really depends on the, the communities that you have in your pond. Oh. But yeah, generally, as a rule of thumb, I think mid midday is is a good time to try. And a lot more, a lot easier than getting up at three in the morning. Oh, brilliant! Well, thanks so much, Jack. Um, you've we've already mentioned your Twitter handle. Are you on Facebook or anything like that, or is it just Twitter for you? Um, mainly Twitter. I mean, also SoundCloud, I guess. Actually. Yeah. Oh, so how how do we find you on SoundCloud? Just Jack Greenhouge. Oh, excellent. Which is um, Green H A L G H. Brilliant. Yeah. So if you googled SoundCloud and that, it should come up as well. If you, oh, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Jack. That was absolutely fascinating. It's, well, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Oh, you're most welcome. It's uh, you know, someone that spends a lot of time looking in ponds. I've I've very rarely touched on the acoustic side of things so that's uh, another thing for me to start exploring so uh, and I encourage you all to do the same um, like I say check up the details on that on the 21st of June I believe it was wasn't it the uh, the day that's so, right, yeah. Yeah, I'll be doing that myself so uh, okay then guys well that's uh, pretty much it from me I've got a few episodes coming out this month hopefully I'm going to hopefully have something special for insect week and yeah keep an eye on social media and I'll put some more news out cheers thanks very much everybody bye bye Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UKWildlifePodcast. And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UKWildlifePod, where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.